This podcast deals with violence and contains graphic descriptions that may be triggering for sensitive listeners. I have no threats of violence against any person. I do not harbor any resentment against any specific person and I have no disposition to violence and I have no history of violent conduct. We still have not found Yosef to hear his side of the story, but we have something else. Only a few weeks before finishing the work on this podcast, we got a hold of the recordings from the trial. What you just heard is part of the statement that Yosef's lawyer read out during the bail hearing. When he was done reading the statement, the magistrate, Hemen Badenhorst, responded like this. You confirm the contents of the affidavit, particularly the portion as to how it happened that you fired shots. That is, that's extremely important. You can, I can guarantee you they will prove that against you in the subsequent trial. What is it that the magistrate is so certain they will prove against Yosef in the trial? We will get there soon. You are listening to One Night in Snake Park. My name is Elliot Muleva. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Jen, for tea. I didn't want to interrupt him reading the statement. I just wanted to finish that first. What you just heard was from Yosef's first appearance in court in February 2015. In total, he appeared four times. In this episode, we will go through the court case and explain what happened from the first day where the magistrate warned Yosef that his statement wasn't believable. And the last day, in September that same year, where he walked out with a suspended sentence. But we will begin somewhere else, because no case is better than the evidence it is built on. And that evidence is collected by the police. Uh, hello, hello. How are you? Good, As you can hear, the clerks at the Dobsonville police station in Soweto know my colleague Rasmus Bits. In the last few months, he has become a regular visitor at the station. Uh, hey. Hey, you remember me from uh, last time? Yes, you are back. I'm back. He's following up on a request he made several weeks ago. He wants to get a copy of the docket where the details about the investigation of the killing of Spio Mahori can be found. I just wanted to, I just sent that email with all the documents that we were talking about the other day. So, so and now we were coming by anyway, so I just thought, let me just come and check up on it in person. What's the name of that? Of? From what? Um, Sound Africa. Sound Africa? Yes. This is not an easy task. I know that because I've tried as well. I've been here with Nombuiselo, Spiwe's mother, twice. Rasmus is now our third reporter trying to access the file. The reason we haven't given up is this. 
there is a massive difference between what the Mahori family says happened when their son died, what the court documents reveal, and what the people we've spoken to in Snake Park say. And so far, the Somalis have said nothing. We hope that the docket can get us closer to what happened. Because in there, we will find the pieces that were put together to form the state's version of what happened. The official version. It is the third time Rasmus visits the little office at the end of a dark hall, where the friendly administrative staff tell him for the third time that he cannot access the docket. Under South African law, we are entitled to access the docket. But along the way, we have collected quite a few different explanations as to why we can't. We've been told that the docket was missing, that it wasn't in the station. We've been told we needed permission from the family. But when I went there with Nombuiselo, the story changed again. At that time, we were told that the docket had to stay at the police station and we couldn't make a copy. Hello, hello. Uh, is this uh, Colonel Vlamini? When we filed another official request, we were again told we needed to ask the higher-ups in the system. Um, and I'm trying to request access to a docket from Dobsonville uh, police station. Um, and I just got information from the station commander here that I must speak to you to try and do that. Um, would, that be, would that be the correct procedure? When we got a response from Pretoria, they told us to go back to Dobsonville and ask again. The docket is the only paperwork that would show the official version of what happened during the investigation. What facts did the police find? And what did the witness say? But so far, Rasmus has as much luck as I did. As the transcripts and the tapes reveal, during the court case, no witnesses were called and only the shooter's version of events were recorded. This is not as strange as it may sound because the South African adversarial legal system works by the defense and the prosecution presenting their evidence. The magistrate does not normally interview witnesses or have access to the police docket. And so far, neither do we. So let's get back to the court case. And it begins in February 2015. It was a dramatic day outside Protea Magistrate Court in Soweto, because not only Yosef, but also a number of local residents accused of looting, a few of the more than 150 that had been arrested in the violence were appearing in court. Tensions were running high and people were angry. For the first time, Meda accused Abdishashi Sheikh Yusuf had his rights and the... A TV crew from ENCA spoke to several women whose sons were detained. Later, outside, their relatives voiced their frustrations. Why are they defending the Pakistanis? One of them said. Others demanded their sons be released so they could go back to school. For what? 
But inside the courtroom, the case began without incident. I know that the quality of the tapes we got is not great. But the content is really what's interesting. Yusuf stood accused of murder, attempted murder, possession of an illegal firearm, and possession of ammunition. The first hearing was to determine whether Yusuf would be released on bail or not. Spiwa's mother, Nombuiselo, had learned about the bail hearing from the news, she says, and she was in the gallery for the first time seeing the man who shot her son. I was so scared. I was so angry and so scared. You see those things. According to Nombuiselo, the bail hearing was the only view of the justice system she got. On, on the days that you did go to court, uh, it wasn't because the police officer had told you to come? No. And how did you know when to go to court on those days? I heard it at the television. You never found out that actually the final thing only is six months later in September. No one told you? No. Deciding the matter was Magistrate Hammond Badenhorst, the man you heard in the introduction. He has a reputation for saying exactly what is on his mind. Proceedings began with Yosef's lawyer, Mr. Sinosi, reading out a statement on behalf of his client. I, the undersigned Sheikh Yusuf, declare as under oath as follows. I am an adult male, Somali national, and I've been in South Africa since 2006, and I've never traveled to Somalia again. In short, the affidavit details Yusuf's life in South Africa in the most bare-boned fashion. It says he's a refugee and has been in South Africa since 2006. He has never gone back to Somalia. He lives in Mayfair in Johannesburg. He's divorced, has a child, and is the only breadwinner of his family. He has not yet seen the docket with the evidence against him, but he wants to tell the court what happened from his point of view. Yusuf describes how he closed his shop around 10 at night, and soon after that, heard noises from outside. People were trying to break in. The people managed to open the roller door and I and my brother pushed the roller door down and a firearm fell from one of the mills. And we managed to close the roller door whilst the firearm was inside the shop. According to Yosef, that's when suddenly a gun fell through the partially opened door and landed inside. This, Yosef said, was how he got hold of the gun he used to shoot three warning shots through the roof before shooting through the door, unknowingly killing Spiwe. I only saw there was a boy shot when the police arrived. Yusuf went on to say that he had been assaulted in jail and that he intended to plead not guilty to all charges. At this point, Magistrate Badenhorst interrupted. 
The magistrate didn't believe Yosef when he said that the gun just happened to fall through the door from the outside. But Yosef didn't budge. Confirms indeed by nodding his head, Yosef. During the rest of the hearing, the discussion revolved around Yosef's immigration status. The investigating officer, Mr. Ramutan, the man you heard in an earlier episode, couldn't confirm Yusuf's immigration status, and there was some concern that his documents were fraudulent. As a result, the case was postponed. This happened two times. At the third bail hearing, the prosecutor conceded that Yusuf's papers were in fact valid, that he was in the country legally. But the state still didn't want to grant him bail. The prosecutor was concerned Yosef might flee the country. But Magistrate Badenhorst didn't believe that this was a concern. Now with all the greatest of respect, Somalia is not the best country in the world to live in. If I were you, I wouldn't go back there. So I can't see why you would want to go back there. Besides this, the magistrate found out that the investigating officer didn't have a statement from the only other witness they knew for sure was at the scene. A young man named Lebohang. Because there weren't there more than one child outside the door? Since the complainant the complainant for the attempted murder is still alive. He's still alive, Ashib, yes. What does he say happened? Ashib, we haven't obtained his statement. Ashib. You haven't? Yeah, I haven't. You're going to obtain his statement. Sure. He met Ashib. was still in hospital, Ashib. Oh, is he in hospital? Yes. Was he also hit? Yes, was seized on the arm, Ashib. According to the state, Lebakang was still in hospital and no statement had been taken from him. This was almost three weeks after the shooting. Are there no other eyewitnesses? There are witnesses who basically came after the incident. Yeah, no, no, I don't mean afterwards. I mean that can say what happened outside the door when the deceased was shot. The investigating officer also had not been able to verify if there were any other bullet holes at the crime scene either, because as he said, the community disorganized that place. As the magistrate concluded, three weeks after the incident, the state had not actually been able to present any witnesses or any evidence that contradicted Yusuf's version. So Yusuf was granted bail of 2,000 rands and released. And perhaps for your own safety, go and live at your address in Mayfair. I mean, if you go back to the shop now, that's like inviting problems. I mean, just, just use common sense now. Given the fact that the case had caused a nationwide wave of xenophobic violence and that Yusuf stood accused of murder, this was a surprise to many, not least the Mahoris 
and the people in Snake Park. But judging from what happened in the courtroom, the magistrate's conclusion seems sound. No version other than Yosef's was presented, and no evidence either. What evidence was available at the time, we don't know, because that information would be in the docket, and that we still cannot get. It feels like somebody's trying to keep it from us, like a conspiracy. And in South Africa, this wouldn't be unthinkable. Missing dockets has always been a massive problem in the police. Um, you know, there's been many initiatives to try and deal with the issue. Uh, police officers have been prosecuted criminally for selling dockets and destroying dockets. This is Gareth Newham, the head of the Justice and Violence Prevention Unit at the Institute for Security Studies in Pretoria. We got in touch with him to try to understand what could have happened to the docket. You can steal a docket, you can break in the detective's office and steal it, or you can pay them for it. So there's various ways dockets can go missing. The detectives can just forget where they put the docket. If you are facing a criminal investigation and you did commit the crime and you have a dedicated detective or even not necessarily a dedicated detective, but a detective is simply doing their job and collecting evidence, mm. the one piece, the one uh, thing that you want to interfere with will be the docket. Because once the docket goes missing, they have to start from scratch. And according to Gareth Newham, there has been efforts to stop dockets from going missing. Most importantly, an electronic system where all dockets would be scanned and stored centrally so that they would not be lost. But that system is not yet up and running. So the idea was that the docket, is, as it is opened, it is scanned, and as evidence is gathered, the referenced evidence pieces are scanned and added to the docket. So there's an electronic separate docket kept separately, electronically, on a server. In fact, it is questionable whether the system will ever really work properly, Gareth says. Partly because detectives are sometimes resisting change, but also because the logistics are difficult. Not all police stations have functioning internet connections to upload the documents. And then, there is the giant elephant in the police station. Corruption. To, to achieve this, you need procurement in place. And the police are not brilliant at procuring the best possible equipment at the best possible price. Mm. There's a kind of a opaque area in supply chain management where people don't actually know why things are bought or for what prices. And we've seen before the standing committee on public accounts, the massive corruption taking place there, how they've outsourced whole IT systems to private companies involved in corruption and giving kickbacks to cops. And the list goes on and on. It's clear that it is possible to make an inconvenient docket disappear. But why would it be moved or hidden from us after the court case was over? It doesn't really make sense. Unless there's something in the docket somebody desperately wants to hide from the public. Something that didn't come out during the court case. Staples case number 43-134 of 2015. This is how it ended. State versus Adibakshai Sheikh Yusuf. Today is the 2nd of September. In September, more than six months after Spiwa's death, the trial resumed in Protea Magistrates Court. The months following the bail hearings had seen more incidents of xenophobic attacks. But during the winter, 
both the weather and the tempest had cooled. There were no crowds outside, and if any journalists covered the case, there is no evidence of it that we have been able to find. Nombuiselo and Dan say they were not there. There had been plenty of time for the police to find witnesses and collected the evidence that the magistrate was asking for during the bail hearing. There had also been plenty of time for Yosef to run away. But there he was, faithfully on the bench, awaiting his judgment. Magistrate Badenhorst was still presiding, but Yosef had a new lawyer. The state had also changed the charge from murder to culpable homicide and added a count for firing a gun in a municipal area. Stop with the first count. It's culpable homicide. It's not murder. The difference between murder and culpable homicide is with murder, you intend killing the person. With culpable homicide, it is more of an accident and a negligence than anything other. Do you understand the first count? What this meant was that the state recognized that Yosef had not intentionally shot Spiwe. It also meant that there were no minimum sentence required. Yosef was still charged with possession of an illegal firearm, something that potentially was a much more serious crime. Okay, but just for record purposes, the charge sheet does refer to section 51 of Act 105 of 97, which provides for 15-year minimum penalty being in possession of a semi-automatic firearm. But Yosef had changed his tune too. And how do you plead? Guilty or not guilty? He now pled guilty to all charges. All that was missing was the sentencing. But before that, Yosef's lawyer read out a new statement. I, Abdi Hash Yusuf, hereby wish to state as follows. I plead guilty to the charge of culpable homicide. Again, he explained that he was inside his shop at 10.30 in the evening when he was attacked. Being scared, he said, he shot through the closed roller door and unintentionally killed Spiwe. I was only trying to scare off the mob and unfortunately the bullet hit the deceased. This time, he already had the gun. It didn't fall through the door from the outside. Remember, during the bail hearing, that's what Yusuf had claimed happened. Usually magistrates don't talk about their cases, so we didn't expect much when we reached out to Mr. Bedenhorst to hear what this change of heart had meant to him. But as it turned out, Bedenhorst doesn't care much about what's usual. You know, if we plead guilty, we, and, and, and it's, uh, we take that as a sign of remorse, which is mitigating. If you don't come and waste time, come with some nonsense story. If they continued on the basis that someone opened the shutter door and the gun fell out to us from nowhere, that would have made it I would have sent him to prison, perhaps. This is him speaking to Tanya Pampaloni. He says he doesn't mind talking because he has retired or technically resigned. Technically, I resigned. You see, as it is, they want to use our pension now for, for ESCOM. It's exactly the thing I feared. So I said, so chucking money down a black hole as I saw. So I said, now give me my money. He has been in the justice system since the 1970s 
and is considered a conservative judge who doesn't care whose toes he steps on. I'm a bit cautious what I say. <laughs> I, 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 okay. I, I know I've got a bit of a loose mouth you know, so <laughs> Sorry, say things that I shouldn't say or sometimes. In spite of this resolution, Berenhorst has agreed to comment on the case to the degree that he remembers it. He doesn't recall details, but for that, we have the tapes and the transcripts. After the change of tune from Yosef, the prosecution and the defense laid out their arguments for the sentencing. In short, the defense argued that Yosef should not serve jail time considering his justified fear of the angry crowd outside. The state was represented by Mrs. Ramtahal, who kept it short. The state will further submit that the family of the deceased as well as the community look towards our courts for retribution, Your Worship, under the circumstances, and that appropriate sentence, Your Worship, is suspended or a fine would be inappropriate under the circumstances. Um, further, Your Worship, the state will submit that a suspended sentence won't address the seriousness of the offence and also the loss of life that uh, had taken place on the day in question, Your Worship. With the arguments over, the magistrate began his sentencing by saying that it was important not to lose sight of the fact that the victim was only a 14-year-old. On the other hand, Yusuf would not have been able to see that through the door. The thing about the door is interesting, not only because Yosef had changed his explanation, but also because shooting through doors was a major topic of conversation at the time. This is from the case against athlete Oscar Pistorius, who shot his girlfriend, Rieva Stienkamp, through a bathroom door in February 2013. Will she believe the prosecution's version that the athlete chased his girlfriend down this corridor and into the bathroom, where she barricaded herself in the toilet and he deliberately fired four shots? During the court case, Pistorius' main defense was that he thought an armed intruder was inside. We are not going to go into the Pistorius case, but it is interesting to note how the defense in both cases were relying on the idea that the shooter thought he was shooting someone else. Towards the toilet cubicle, believing that his life and his girlfriend's was at risk. Not a woman like Riva Stienkamp, not a child like Spio Mahori. Both cases rested on the idea that a reasonable person in South Africa would expect an armed, dangerous black man behind a closed door. Today, however, Bedenhorst doesn't think it was an appropriate comparison he made at the time. It wasn't proper of me to have done so. It's just because it was high in the media at the time and, and he also shot someone through a closed door and came up with stories. So, so I made some remark. Uh, as far as that is concerned, but it's, it's totally different and a different factual issues. After elaborating on the circumstances of the shooting in the courtroom, Magistrate Bedenhorst took what seemed like some strange tense in his speech. And uh, right in the Old Testament already in the Bible, we are told to be kind towards foreigners. So if foreigners are within the borders of your country, you show particular kindness to them more than you otherwise would have. Now, what this would mean is, uh, and I don't think this is a wrong argument, uh, if a foreigner commits a certain offence and a local 
citizen commits the same offence, generally in a court of law, the local citizen is going to receive a harsher punishment than, than the, the foreigner. We have no statistics that confirms whether this is a trend. Migration lawyers will often tell you the opposite is true. And when it comes to prosecutions of those who attack foreigners, they are rarely ever prosecuted, despite outcries from human rights groups and migrancy researchers. Later, the magistrate decided to give his opinion on the murder weapon. Now, I haven't been informed where you got the firearm from. Uh, these Norinko pistols are very popular for illegal possessors. They are manufactured in China and they come here to South Africa by the shipload, I'm sure. And uh, they are sold on the black market. I'm not referring to black people now. <laughs> the black market, if we use that expression, it refers to the illegal market. It's not a very uh, uh, good pistol, it's not of good quality. It's rather rubbish, I'd never buy one myself myself with all due respect but the problem is it kills like any other pistol the illegal possession of a semi-automatic firearm was perhaps more serious than the shooting itself it carries a minimum sentence of 15 years but as badenhorst reminded the court it is possible to suspend a sentence or lower it under special circumstances the sentence is seven years imprisonment but it is wholly suspended for five years on condition that you are not convicted of murder, attempted murder, or culpable homicide uh, committed during the period of suspension. On count two, the possession of a firearm, three years imprisonment suspended for five years on condition that you are not convicted of contravening section three or four. They both refer to unlawful possession of firearms committed during the of suspension. We don't know what happened behind the scenes. What convinced the prosecutor to change the charge from murder to culpable homicide? And in turn, there was no need to present any witnesses or show further evidence. And so the entire case ended with only the shooter's version ever recorded. But one thing that appears really strange is that the other victim, Lebohang, the other young man who was shot in the arm by Yosef seems to have completely vanished from the case. The attempted murder charge is gone. During the bail hearings, we heard that Lebohang spent days in hospital. So why was his case dropped? And being the only confirmed witness to the shooting of Spiwe, what happened to his statement? In court, the matter was over. The facts were decided between the government and the accused. The victim, of course, couldn't say anything. Do you think that this is the best outcome? Is this the kind of like justice that we can expect? You see, in the circumstances, on the facts, I don't feel I should have sent that guy to prison. The court is not to, to take an armchair approach and sit there and say, now, well, this, you should have done this and that. You have to place yourself in the, in the accused position as far as you possibly can, and the deceased as well. But, I mean, as I said, I, I have to stick to the facts that are presented to me.
and that's the way I saw it at the time. It did not seem like we would get any closer to the actual facts of the case, and not just the ones agreed upon in court. But then, on a whim, on his way home from Snake Park, Rasmus decided to stop at the Dobsonville police station again. Okay, that was weird. Um, I've been trying to get hold of this docket for months. I've tried, Elliot has tried, Elliot has been here with Numboiselo. Last week I was told that all our requests had to be escalated to the head office. Um, uh, and then today I decided to go and, and try and speak to the station commander. Um, and he just called somebody from the admin staff and told them to go fetch the docket, and they did. And now I've got a brown envelope with all the documents that the police ever made in the case. Just like that, it took like 15 minutes. At first glance, the docket looks promising. 70 pages of evidence. But soon, it becomes clear that it reveals very little. There are a couple of witness statements, but nobody saw what happened. They were all either asleep or on their way home and only arrived at the scene after Spewer had been shot. In the docket, Spewer's age is mistakenly put at 17 rather than 14. Compared to what Numbuiselo had told us, the witness statements and the statements from the police officers who came to the scene suggest that Spew was shot later in the evening, around 10.30. But the different details are minor. The forensic report confirms that Spew was shot in the neck and that the bullet went straight through and out on the other side, like Norman said. There are two ballistics reports, which seem strange. But when we showed the docket to several independent attorneys, they didn't find anything particularly suspect. In the end, there are only a few things in the docket that truly stands out. The first is the statement from Lebohang, the other victim in the case, the man who was shot in the arm. The statement the police couldn't take because Lebohang was in hospital. But in the docket, there it is. It was taken on the 21st of January 2015, before the court hearing, where the prosecutor in the case said that Lebohang was in the hospital and they had not been able to interview him yet. In the statement, Lebohang says he was on his way home from work when he accidentally got hit by a stray bullet and unknown people took him to the hospital. It also says he has no contact details. It does not seem like anything in the docket warrants a conspiracy involving high-level police officers, clerks, councillors, or foreign business owners. The docket reveals no cover-up. What it does reveal is that the investigating officer knew almost as little about Spiway or that night in Snake Park as was presented in court. And that is very, very little. 
We have a couple of different versions of Spumahori from that night in Snake Park. Depending on which angle one looks from, Spua can be anything from a criminal to an innocent victim. And the same can be said about Yusuf, the shooter. But what these versions have in common is that they all come from people who were not there. They are stories that we have agreed on in order to go on living in a world that looks much the same, only without Spiwe and with Yusuf out of the way. Next time on One Night in Snake Park. And um, so, did you go to the hospital after that? No, I, I, I was even scared. As I tell you, I wasn't even scared to go to the hospital. And did you ever speak to the police? No, hey, no, no, no. Hey, I was very scared. Really? You never spoke to the police? No, for I don't know what I'll say. What will I say? Reporting for this podcast by Tanya Pampaloni, Elliot Moleba, Neo Rahajani and Rasmus Bits. Additional reporting by Paul McNally and recording assistance by Andreas Hammer Holmefield. Original score by John Batman. Editing by Rasmus Bits. Tanya Pampoloni is executive producer. JD Ramalapa is the editor in chief of Sound Africa. <laughs>